first thing I did was start going through the bureau drawers, and I found underneath his underwear on the top left drawer a pile of bills that I immediately grabbed and slid into the front left pocket of my jeans with all the rest of my money. Hey there, and welcome to Grit, True Stories That Matter, a weekly podcast on the art and craft of the personal narrative story. Each week, my partner Kurt and I tackle one topic or question and answer it as best we can to help you craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories, personal stories, grit stories. This week, our feature storyteller of our first episode of 2021 is Howard Lieberman. Howard lives up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and he has got a 13-minute story. Stick around after Howard is done when Kurt and I tackle this week's topic, making bold choices. Finally, both Kurt and I have beginner storyteller classes starting. Mine is Sunday afternoon. Kurt's is Monday evening. If either of those sound interesting to you, please reach out. We'd love to have you. It's going to be a lot of fun. You can find more information about both of those classes in the show notes. Feel free to reach out by email, hello at storygrit.com, or message us on our Facebook page. We really appreciate you listening and all of your support. Let's dive in. In 1958... I was nine years old when our father danced out of our life. And that was okay because my dad was basically a a narcissistic, homophobic, frustrated tap dancer who was abusive to me. And his departure was a welcome, welcome event in my life. But at that moment, I grew up and decided I was going to protect my mother from all the evils in the world. And I would be a man. I would be a real man. I failed. A couple of years later, my mom died. And I was left with nobody and nothing. I was bounced around to relatives and foster care and all the rest. And finally, the last place at which I was living, the people looked at me one day and said, you're too much trouble for us. And they took everything I owned, put it in a box, and said, here you go. Now leave. We no longer want you here. Don't ever come back. I never did. If they didn't want me, I didn't want them. And that's the way it went. I took what I could use out of the box, threw it in the backpack, threw the rest of the stuff on the floor, and walked out the door, stuck out my thumb, and went wherever the first ride was going. The first ride was going a long way, all the way from Chicago to Boston, which is how I wound up one summer night in 1967, sitting on the street in Boston, my back against a brick wall, my Chicago Cubs baseball cap on the sidewalk next to me, and all these Ivy League snooty tooty types in Bermuda shorts and khaki slacks and penny loafer shoes without socks. Just sat there and watched this display But the good news is some of those snooty-tooty people put money into my Cubs hat, and I began to amass quite a little fortune, I think. Hopefully enough for a meal and a place to spend the night before I had to move on. 
As I looked up, there was this man walking towards me. He was very fit, lean, but muscular, very dark black skin, a tight black muscle t-shirt and tight black jeans. He walked over, looked me up and down, bent over, put a $10 bill in my hat and walked away. He got about a half block away, did like a little pirouette and came back. Again, he stopped, looked me up and down. This time he put a $20 bill in my hat. And when he stood up, he said, where are you from, boy? I said, I'm from Chicago. He said, do you have a place to sleep in Boston? I said, no. He said, do you want to stay at my place? I hesitated. I had enough street smarts not to trust the first person who came my way and offered me a room for the night, but I looked into this man's eyes and I saw a decent human being. I don't know what it was, but they were warm, kind eyes. So I said, okay, I'll stay with you. I gave him my hand, he helped me up. I took the money out of my cub's hat and it was quite a bit and put it all in my front left pocket of my jeans. We walked about 15, 20 minutes. We wound up in front of this brick row house. And the man says, this is where I live. I'm on the third floor. Come on up. Up we went. It was a two-bedroom apartment with a nice kitchen on living room. On one side was a big bedroom. And he said, that's my bedroom. I have the deck. I can see all over Boston from there. That room on the left, that smaller bedroom, that'll be your room. It's not much, but it has a bed and a blanket, a, a small private bathroom, and you should be fine in there. And he walked away. Well, the first thing I did was start going through the bureau drawers, and I found underneath his underwear on the top left drawer, and by the way, he had very, very funny underwear, uh, a pile of bills that I immediately grabbed and slid into the front left pocket of my jeans with all the rest of my money. I then walked and looked at his closet, and inside the closet was 12 red velvet dresses lined up like soldiers in a row. And with my jaw dropping to the floor, the man walked up behind me and said, You like those dresses? I spun around and said, Whose dresses are those? He said, They're mine. I said, Bullshit. You're a man, and men don't wear dresses unless they're some kind of queers. He said, well, have you ever heard of a drag queen? And I said, no. And I hadn't. I'd heard of drag racing, but never a drag queen. He said, drag queens are men who like to dress up like women, not in a funny way, but in a respectful way, and sing and dance at clubs called drag bars and get paid to do that, to entertain. And I perform at a club called the Twilight Lounge. I'm the headliner. People come to see me. My stage name is La Diabla. And sometimes someone will offer you a little extracurricular. At this point, La Diabla gave me a wink that I found kind of creepy and gave me a lot of extra money for that extracurricular, which is how I can afford our apartment. Hmm. He said, our apartment. He said, well, I'll leave you alone. Um, if you need anything, just holler. And he walked away. I didn't take off my clothes because I didn't know what this place was all about. So I hopped into bed with my jeans on and a t-shirt 
pulled the blankets up, and slept like a log. I woke up the next morning to the smell of bacon, sausage, and real strong coffee. La Diabla knocks on the door, walks in and says, Hungry for breakfast? I said, sure. And the eggs were good and the bacon was good, but the coffee was great. He said, well, here you go. Now we're all set to go. Here's what I'm going to do. You seem like a nice boy. Here's a set of keys to the apartment. You can come and go as you please. I'm going to go to the club every night and work. And sometimes I don't get home until dawn. But don't worry about that. I'll be okay. And on the bottom of a card he gave me, it said, La Diabla, with a phone number. And he said, if you get into any trouble, if any problems, you call me at the club, and I'll help you deal with them. And I said, thanks. Life was pretty good. I would come and go, hang out with the street kids, smoke a little weed, never took the heavy drugs, but just life was good. I had a place, and La Diabla never bothered me. In fact, over breakfast, we would sit around and discuss our life histories, share stories of abuse, homelessness, and I began to feel welcome. I began to feel like I had a home. One night, I was sitting in the room watching TV when those jagged lights started. The ones that start in one eye cover your whole face in light and let you know that a bad migraine is coming. And a bad migraine did come. A horrible migraine. The worst I'd ever had. I tried cold compresses. I tried everything, but my head was on fire. I thought maybe this time I was going to die. I really believed that. So I didn't know what to do, and I, I really didn't. I was panicking. I didn't know what to do. So I took out the card. The Twilight Lounge. I called the number, and a very gruff voice says, Yeah. I said, um, may I speak to La Diabla? Who the fuck is this? I, I, I'm, I'm her boy. I'm her son. I, I'm, I'm really sick. I think I might be dying. He said, oh, fuck me, and slams the phone down on a table with a loud, loud bang. And about two minutes later, La Diabla comes on the line and says, hello? Is that you, boy? I, I said, yeah, La Diabla. I have a horrible, horrible, horrible headache. I don't know what to do. It's inside my head. I think I'm going to die. I don't know what to do. What, what, where should I go? What? La Diabla said, stay right there. Stay right there. I'll be right there for you. Hung up the phone, and about 10 minutes later, in comes La Diabla in her red velvet gown, which she looked very nice in, her high heels and her face all made up and said, what can I do for you? What can I? I said, I don't know, La Diabla. I, I, maybe I should go to the hospital. And at that, she picks me up in her arms. We run out the front door like that. With me in one arm, she flags down a taxi, takes me to Mass General's emergency room, where we're greeted by a big sergeant-looking woman who said, stop right there. What's your problem? And La Diabla puts me down and goes over to the desk and says, my boy is dying. We need to see a doctor. The woman said, yeah, 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 yeah. Take a number. It could be a couple of hours. Go sit down. We'll call you when we're ready. At that, La Diabla picks me up in her arms and says, no, my boy needs to see a doctor now. He's dying. 
and she rushes through a curtain with this woman screaming, stop, stop, lady, stop, or I'll call the police. And we're in this big, big open area with a lot of beds and curtains, and Ladiaba's screaming for a doctor. I need a doctor. My boy is dying. And eventually, uh, a very nice young man wearing doctor clothes and a stethoscope comes over and says, what's the problem? I tell him. He puts me on a bed, looks into my eyes, listens to my chest, and I tell him, I, it could be a migraine, but if it is, it's the worst migraine I've ever had. He said, here's what I'll do for you. You lie back. And he hooked up an IV into my arm. He said, I'm going to guess that you're used to getting high. This will be the same thing. Just go with the flow, and the headache will go away. And eventually it did. And I looked up, and La Diablo was sitting in a chair next to me, holding my hand, brushing my hair out of my eyes. The doctor took the ivy out, gave me a prescription that I put in my other pockets, and said, you can take the boy home. La Diablo picks me up in her arms, carries me out to the street, flags a taxi, takes me home, puts me in bed, pulls the blankets over me, and holds my hand and strokes my head until I fall asleep. The next morning, I smell coffee, bacon, eggs, the whole nine yards. And I heard La Diablo yell, are you up, boy? Are you hungry? Well, actually, I was kind of nauseated and was anything but hungry. But I lied and said, I'm hungry. Yep. She said, come on in. Let's get something to eat. Had breakfast, talked about the night before. Told her I was feeling better. She said, take care of yourself. Remember, you can always call me at the club, and this house belongs to you now as much as me, because your pain lives here. That sounded kind of weird, but I said, okay. And that's the way things went. We had breakfast together. She went out at night, did whatever she does at night, came home. I would watch TV until I went to bed. It was just, it was a nice life. But after a while, it was time to move on. So I wrote a note, told La Diablo how much I loved her, signed my name, Howie, packed everything back to my backpack, walked out to the road, stuck out my thumb, and hitched to the next town, wherever that would be, whatever stories that would lead me to. I never forgot La Diablo. I still get migraines at 71 years old. And sometimes they're very, very bad. And when I do, I take pills now. I take medication. But I think of La Diabla and can feel her hand running up and down my arm, brushing the hair out of my forehead and telling me, don't worry, boy, everything will be all right. So, Sean, you're on the sidewalk in any town USA and someone walks by and you're down on your luck. Right. Someone offers you a place. Mm -hmm. Well, we know how the world works, especially when it comes to strangers. Do you get up off your ass and just start following that person who's twice your size back to their place? The I actually have a very clear answer to that is. <laughs> no, it's not what you think, actually. Okay, I'm going good. in a different direction. 
All right, cool. You and I and nobody listening to this has a clue of what they would do until they're homeless. Hmm. Period. What I admire about it is that we often do things that when we go back and try to explain them, they don't have a full-on logic. Right. We're human, Kurt. Yeah. I'm so grateful that we don't always have a perfect logical explanation for everything. But the stakes are rather high when you're homeless for most people who are homeless. Actually, I shouldn't say that. I'm not homeless. Nonetheless, there's a lot of ways to craft this story. And he's going with a way that makes it very clear very early on that he's willing and open to talk about stuff that might be uncomfortable, provocative. And he does it. So there's there's something there that at least for me is like, all right, yeah, I want to listen to this. It's something uh, maybe some other people wouldn't be so honest about or open about. We talk about stories because stories beget stories. And so the idea is that when we listen to Howard's story or people who are listening to this podcast, they might be hearing Howard's story or even this segment of the show and thinking of their own stories. The one thing that I really want to put my finger on here is Howard came back and he said, this was the reasoning. He didn't say it was perfect, but he did it anyway. That I loved because we can talk ourselves out of doing stories because there isn't a perfectly logical motivation. We just did stuff because we're in love or heartbroken or losing or homeless or desperate or whatever it might be. To tell that story, we got to accept the people that we were. Howard's like, I was a rolling stone. This is what was happening. And I was like, all right, I'll go with that. Let's see where that takes us. Howard takes us into some places that we've never been. I know one thing about Howard is he's comfortable showing you showing himself in a light that's less than flattering look at him he's in this benefactor's apartment this guy's just trying to help him out next thing we know he's like snooping around the apartment not just snooping but he's like opening drawers not just opening drawers but like picking up another man's underwear to see what's underneath he's willing to show you what he what he was up to it's not it's not very nice what he's doing. He's, and then he's opening up a closet and then he gets busted. And then we get to see Howard in, in an unflattering light again because, well, La Diablo's like, how do you like those dresses? Queers wear dresses, <laughs> something like that, right? Yeah. What does that do for you when you hear that? Like, oh, shit. Almost like, can you say that? Are you allowed to say that? Which for me, I'm like, uh, yeah, say whatever you want. Your story. Don't apologize. Your truth. Well, that's probably part of the reason he put it in there like that. There's a lot of ways to communicate with us the information, but he's doing it in a way where I think he's sort of like saying, well, this is the kind of guy I was. Yeah. This is the kind of situation I was in and the language that I use and how I frame it, it reflects that. Presumably how he wants us to sort of feel. Yeah, this is ugly, but this is the truth. And it wasn't just, it wasn't the late 60s. Just look at some stand up comedy from 10 years ago. Or maybe, all right, just to be safe, the 90s. Check out some stand up comedy, what flew for attitudes towards people who were gay or trans or whatever it was. I mean, it's just so out in the open. Watch Saturday Night Live from the 90s. Our culture has changed so rapidly, it makes right. your head spin. Right. I love an artist who's like, well, I've been around long enough. It, 
it is changing rapidly, but it used to be this way. And it's really important to this story. It acts yeah. like an anchor that you know my old attitude because by the end of this, I'm letting him call me his son. I'm calling the Twilight Lounge. I'm saying I belong to him. When you look at a closet full of dresses and you're concerned and you've never heard of men in drag, but only drag races, it's a lot of earth to be moving within 10, 11 minutes. Yes. Right. Part of being an artist is just being honest, man. Don't change it because it's X number of years later and you got to make sure people are okay with it. That's not how this road works. That might be the definition of mediocrity in, in art right there. Wait, what are they going to think? I can't say that word. I don't even know if I can feel that way. There's Imagine what would happen if you actually felt that way and you told us about it. By the way, there's a whole lot of other people that feel that way, but they're not saying it aloud. You are. Yeah. It's a really good strategy in storytelling to, to be a sort of underdog. And so vis-a-vis -vis the culture, if you're, you're coming from an underdog place, then that's an excellent start. Howard Lieberman is a 71-year-old grandfather in Minneapolis. White. He's going to tell you at, right from the outset why he's the underdog. That's a good strategy. Yeah. But when he tells you he's in front of the closet looking at all these fabulous dresses and he says, this is the domain, the demands of, a, of a, someone who was, what, a little ACDC or however they put it back then. You're just like, that's no underdog. That's the oppressor talk. We get caught up in your, are you the victim or are you the victor? You could be both. You know why? Because you're human. He starts this way. He does this thing. And we're going to be like, wait, I feel bad for the homeless guy, but I don't feel bad for that guy. Good. Now you're listening to a human being tell a story about human condition. Mm -hmm. And then he learns a couple of things. La Diablo says, and the reason I can afford all of this, I do a little extracurricular and I get paid handsomely for it. Howard says, and that sounds a little creepy to me. And then he hears, this is how I can afford our apartment. And Howard goes, and I hear that. I hear him say that. Our apartment. Okay. As a listener, I just want to interject. Me I don't too. feel good about this arrangement at all. <laughs> when he goes into the little bedroom and it's time to go to bed, I don't feel good about that kid being in there at all. Is it unpopular to say that I thought he was going to get assaulted? Does that make me a bad person? This is what you do, Sean. When you listen to a story, you're empathizing. You're hugely empathetic. You know that this guy is big enough to carry Howard around in his arms. I don't know. Do we know that at that point? We know he's a big guy. He's muscular. Okay. Howard knows it too. He keeps, he keeps all his clothes on. He feels very uncomfortable, but he goes to bed. La Diabla reminds me of like John Lithgow in uh, World According to Garp. When Lithgow is like in a dress and he's a member of that Ellen Jamesian cult. Right. And he could pick up uh, Robin Williams and carry him around. It's the same sort of situation here where there's la diabla is like turning tricks and dancing around and but also just has this sort of it's like this maternalistic quality that howard finally sort of yields to with comfort these are uncomfortable pivot points in this story for me it keeps me listening it it makes me listen again i'm like you know because in a way it sort of rearranges the way i ordinarily think about things. It causes me to question. It seems like, Sean, we're drawn to this issue of like what gets unsaid. When you get pushed on the other side of being pushed is a lot of information can be left out. It's that information gap we've talked about before. 
you know, a good storyteller isn't going to mire you in detail. And it's interesting to look at what Howard doesn't include here. I like talking to other people about stories I've just heard. Like I get to talk to you and I like understanding, like it's perfectly normal when Howard goes into that bedroom that first night to understand or to feel like, you know, I don't know if I'd, I'd be doing that, Howard. We are asking people, Hey, you know, when you're thinking about what you want to tell or when you're putting it together, don't filter yourself. I mean, you might ultimately filter it when you go through drafts. I don't know. It depends on your process. I think he's probably going to get assaulted. He's not only not assaulted. We ultimately move towards La Diablos cares about Howard in a very different way. And it doesn't include that. It's he's just a good man. That's it. And you and I are left to sit here and look at each other and say, he got lucky. If it was a few hours later and another man came up and offered him some money and he decided to go home with him, right. He could have been killed. Well, I don't know. Are we even basing this on, are we we basing this on movies and bullshit? Do we even know? Maybe we're wrong. Oh, we probably are wrong. Right. (laughs) (laughs) What we see in the story, the the story that Howard tells, the, the, the real honesty here that grabs me is Howard tells a story about how it's not, there's no such thing as being a Rolling Stone, being perfectly alone. That Howard, because in the story, Howard gets sick. Mm -hmm. And when you get sick and you're alone, you're going to need somebody's help. Uh, it just reminds me of some stuff in my life that I'm like, whoa, I, uh, I, I don't, I didn't necessarily have a La Diabla in my life, but it could have gone a different way is all just like it could have gone to ha- for uh, Howard. It really could have gone a different way for him. I love what you say at the beginning of this conversation about, we, we don't really know what it's like. Yeah. We don't know what to be like. homeless and not have a place to stay that night. I don't know that. Right. And we, I, oh, I think so many of us, including me, like we don't even think about that. Like, Oh, I wouldn't have done that. And I, I'm like, I'm glad I had a moment. We have some time to think about, hang on a second. I don't think you know what you would do. So heads up, if I were just alone with this story and I hadn't had a conversation with you about it this morning, I really wouldn't be thinking about that aspect of it. So I'm just saying heads up because it's good to talk to other people about the stories that you're taking seriously. I mean, you can't teach yourself a literature course. You got to be in a class talking to other people and hearing their responses. You're always surprised. And I love, Sean, that you bring that up because I don't know the first thing about sitting on my ass in some street in Boston. Hmm. <laughs> Hoping and you, that there's some place and, to stay tonight. And if you were a young kid in Boston, homeless, you, you're you and Howard Howard. So you're obviously different. But, you know, look, it's the old walk a mile in someone's shoes type thing. I mean, right. you just don't know shit until fill in the blank. Yeah. For me, it's always good to be reminded. And he doesn't do it. He doesn't clobber me over the head. I just happen to be how I sort of processed it i don't know what i would do i think you would survive right that's probably the baseline right and so in that moment the choice is what's going to lead to survival and he made a choice we know what hindsight is so we don't need to talk about that but in the moment you do what you think is best right and by the way being really hungry just influences that decision a lot you can do some really stupid things that when you're hungry to to eat food you can't do anything you're just stuck when you don't know how are you going to eat? You, there's nothing else. There's no organizing the future. There's no dreaming. Having your story, accepting your story, accepting yourself in the story and being like, here it is. Okay. Yeah. I got up and I followed that guy into his place. And I thought Not these things. for everybody. 
Not right. saying it's for everybody, but it's. And I said and did things maybe that I'm thinking about and I'm a little embarrassed about, perhaps, or whatever it may be. Yeah. But I'm going to share it with you. Right. This story turns masculine roles inside out and then inside out again to the point where it's a little bit uncomfortable mm-hmm. for some of us to listen to. Mm-hmm. So I start to think about how funny this all is because. Okay, so the bravery. There are two types of bravery. Okay, so what I got growing up is that, you know, to be a man is to be like physically brave. Physically brave. Physically brave. And this is the part that cracks me up about our freaking society. No one ever talks to you about being emotionally brave. Not often. No, Not I often. think it's something we're cluing into a little bit better these days. Like if you're eight years old now, your dad might be hip to that. <laughs> right. If you're eight years old in 1980, your dad's not hip to that. It's, you're told that you should be physically, you should have physical courage. Right. Okay. That's being a man. That, athletic that prowess, could, right? Athletic prowess. Oh, yeah. You Develop yourself physically. You know, do tough things. Yeah. Don't take shit. Right. Watch Clint Eastwood. Badass. Cowboy. Yeah. Chop some wood. Chop some wood. Roll your sleeves up. Get Guns. it done. Beat the guy up. Get the girl. <laughs> That's right. So we didn't hear so much about what it meant to be brave in any other way other than physicality. We've got a whole different situation when like Howard comes along and he's talking about the stuff he's willing to talk about. Howard's married. He's a granddad. I don't know all that much about Howard, but let's say La Diablo. Let's look at that character for a second, okay? Let's say that at some point when La Diablo was 16, 17 years old, La Diablo is like, I don't want to live this life. I don't want to work at the mutual fund company or life insurance company. I don't want to wear suits. Right. And La Diablo has La Diablo, 16, 17, La Diablo is probably becoming large. That's when you're growing, probably, right? He's getting bigger and bigger. Big dude. Kick some ass, man. So because I'm 48, I've had I've been in put in the position to have to open up uncomfortable conversations like anybody with people. But never have I had to have been so brave as La Diabla or someone like La Diabla to have to tell everybody in your family. Actually, it's not as as you want it to appear. I am going to live a completely different life than you ever guessed that I would because I'm listening to a voice inside. Like that is emotional bravery. And I've never been asked to do anything like that. Yeah. And that's like, that's the delicious irony of this story of Howard very subtly turning uh, male roles and sexuality inside and out and inside and out again. Yeah, I agree. Love that push. Love it. There were plenty of people that were, like La Diablo, they just probably weren't on my radar so much when I was a kid. Or I wasn't like a tough guy or anything. I'm just saying, I know what you're saying with the physically brave stuff. I almost feel like there's a group of people, not that they all know each other, just a group of people in random places. And they're like, oh, we've been here all along. Thanks for finally joining us for a little while. Take a stroll. See how it feels to be really human. I don't, I don't want to be bashing what I used to be or what I am or other people, but there is something more human about it, isn't it? More human about what Howard puts forth, like that kind of story? Yeah, about being emotionally vulnerable or brave or whatever word you want to use. Oh, oh, yeah. And dudes just not essentially, mostly being that way, an argument one could make, but it feels more human 
We don't just focus it all on chopping wood and chasing women and winning games. Yeah. So that's someone else's path. One thing I liked about talking to Howard is I felt like when he said, you know, I've just always been someone who's just sort of, he doesn't say just sort of, but he, he kind of goes with the flow. There's a certain openness to the story of his life. Yeah. He, he's self That's for sure. Yeah. But also autonomy. I'm going to make my own path. I think that's really important. And you never hear that. You never hear that growing up the way we did. Oh, you need to make your own path. It wasn't like that. Mm. It was, I'll give you a ride to Little League. I don't know. I don't, I don't remember a lot of... <laughs> A lot of listening among my teachers and coaches about like, oh, maybe Kurt Mullins, this type of kid, maybe he should, um, I, oh, I bet he'd be good at guitar, you know, or I, I think mm-hmm. he, he could write music or. Um, Kids or people in their life like that are lucky. In rare. Yeah, I totally agree. And then you've got other people who don't really have anybody and they're just cutting their own path through the world. And I at, admire it. Yeah. And some of those people, it ultimately works out in some way and others die. They do what Howard did and they get unlucky. I mean, I'm just saying, you know, like there's no guarantees here. It's not like we're listening to the story being like, you did the right thing or the wrong thing. Like no, that's, no. Not, that's not how I'm filtering it. It's just, this is what happened. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But it's another um, one of those stories you put your finger on it. Like the guy telling the story, he could be dead. hundred percent. Like there are lots of stories out there where that person doesn't emerge from that damn apartment. And we never hear the story. Yeah. Exactly. You know why? Because they're they don't have uh, any ability to tell anymore, or a pulse. Yes. They don't have a pulse. They're dead. If I'm a listener, a listener of grit, and I'm thinking, man, I want to write a story, and I want to be brave, and I want to, what's one thing I can do? A specific thing I can do, or something I can think about that might help me do that? Yeah, great well, question, John. My first step into that answer is like brave doesn't have to mean outlandish and it probably shouldn't just look close be local in your thinking accept the things that you've done and report on them howard doesn't come up with any outlandish reason for why he he follows this guy twice his size down the sidewalk and agrees to stay in the guest bedroom Mm. he just does it that's what happened i believe it i can believe Mm. something like that we do shit like that we foil our own stories when we're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't talk about that. Right. All of us do it. It's, it's just, it must be part of being on earth yeah. that like we, uh, we get to a point where we're like filter everything. And I get why I think, but uh, for the best stories, maybe you don't want to do that. Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks to Howard Lieberman up in Minnesota. Remember, Kurt and I have classes starting this week, so you can check out that information in the show notes. We would love to have you. A quick favor, if you listen on Apple, please rate and review this podcast. It really does help. Next week, a new topic, another teller, and an announcement of a contest that we are starting. So join us then. Boom.